This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 331st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today has been described by the New York Times as quote, the hardest working man in show business, close quote. He doesn't act, he doesn't sing, and he doesn't dance, but he has been right in the middle of many of pop culture's biggest moments of the last 20 years. As the host of the reality competition program American Idol, since it first went on the air in 2002, picking up 12 of his 14 primetime Emmy nominations for hosting or producing that show, as the host of the syndicated countdown radio program American Top 40 and KISS FM's morning radio show On Air with Ryan Seacrest since 2004, as a host of ABC's annual Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve since 2006 and daily talk show Live with Kelly and Ryan since 2017, winning a Best Entertainment Talk Show host daytime Emmy for the latter in 2019, and as the founder and chairman since 2006 of Ryan Seacrest Productions, which makes reality TV shows ranging from Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution, for which he won a producing primetime Emmy in 2010, to Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which has been a ratings machine since 2007, collectively prompting The Hollywood Reporter in a 2011 profile to note that reality TV is, quote, a genre in which he is, beyond measure, the most powerful person in Hollywood, close quote. As the New York Times once put it, quote, it would be an impressive enough achievement to replace Dick Clark, Casey Kasem, Larry King, or Merv Griffin, but to inherit all of their mantles at once is a mind-boggling coup, close quote. I'm talking, of course, about Ryan Seacrest. Over the course of our conversation, the 45-year-old and I discussed the roots of his ambitions for a career in broadcasting and how, over one weekend around the turn of the century, he faced a fateful decision between two competing job offers, one to host the long-established TV show Family Feud and the other to be part of a new program called American Idol. Why, even after Idol became a phenomenon, he kept taking on so much other work, from hosting red carpets to producing the work of others— and how he has managed to juggle it all, what specifically appeals to him about live broadcasting and what he makes of live TV's future at a time when increasing numbers of young people are cord-cutting and even going without TVs altogether, plus much more. And so, with thanks to Ryan, with a plea to our listeners to stay at home, and without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Good to have you. I guess to begin with, just in the Corona era, we like to ask how you're doing and where you're doing it. It's a weird time. Thank you for asking. It is uh, a weird time, and it, it's so nice to not have to be asking the questions on a program <laughs> or audio podcast. You know, I, I'm doing well, fortunately. I've had the opportunity to um, connect with all of my different ventures from home. Been healthy from home, eating well from home, still trying to exercise at home. But I have been asked by some of my friends, you know, what are you doing to occupy your time? And I have tried to fill every hour of the day working, and somehow I have been able to do that. Well, that's good. And uh, now I'm going to take you on a little trip down memory lane, if that's all right with you. I love on this podcast, we go back to the beginning. So just, you know, for listeners who don't know your personal story, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? So I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. My father was a defense attorney, now retired. My mother was uh, driving us to athletic practices on a regular basis, swim team, football practice, things like that. I have one sibling, and when I was eight, I think I knew eight, nine, I knew I was very interested in the radio business just by listening to it. Well, I, I was reading a bit about that where you're not only listening, but calling in and sort of studying hosts and just taking it very seriously. Why, why do you think that was? Was it some sort of a, an escape in a way for you as a kid? 
I, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I it didn't realize it then. And maybe when I was a little older, 11, 12, 13 years old, I was interested in the entertainment business, but the entertainment business to me as an Atlantan was the local radio. I had no idea what Hollywood was like or how to even touch Hollywood. So for me, it became a, fa a fascination with entertainment and I, I love pop popular music. I, I work in pop music now. I listen to pop music now. I love popular music and always had. And I was fascinated by the biggest stars in our city. And those were the DJs. They were the famous people in our city. So I wanted to connect with them and meet them. And, and that was really the beginning of my fascination when I would listen in my bedroom while doing my homework. Now, if we were to grab a classmate of yours from, let's say, 12, 13, 14 years old and say, what was Ryan like back then? What would they remember? Uh, well, it depends on the year. They would probably call me a, a, a chubby, husky, jean-wearing uh, classmate at the time. It's funny because for it's one of the things I have a hard time with is remembering which show I did what on. But for the radio show, for KISS FM in Los Angeles, not too long ago, my mother sent my co-hosts my yearbook from <laughs> high school. And the things that they wrote in there were, see you in Hollywood, good luck on TV and radio. I mean, it was all like it was um, foreshadowing what was truly going to happen. So I think that because I knew my passion early, they would have all saw me in some way doing a little bit of what I'm doing today. Well, I think the the first real manifestation of it might be, correct me if I'm wrong, becoming, quote, the voice of Dunwoody, close quote. Can you share what that meant, what that did for your confidence and self-esteem and sort of sense of purpose as a, as a high school kid who might have, as you say, been a little chubbier or maybe even picked on a little bit? What was that gave you an identity? Yeah, I did. One of the great pressures of my entire career was doing the high school announcements at Dunwoody High School. And I had to audition uh, and at the time to audition for anything was, it's always frightening, but it was really frightening as a teenager. And I had to come into the home office, the, um, the office of the high school and present, re do the pledge of allegiance and present some 4-H meeting details and things like that. And talk about pep rallies and spirit sticks and things. And somehow I got the job and I really took it upon myself to make it a nine minute broadcast every morning to the homerooms of the school. And I, I just started talking about pop culture and music and the Pledge of Allegiance and some of the announcements and no one really stopped me from doing it. And that's when I started to feel very, very comfortable sitting in that chair, open up the microphone, but my heart would pound every morning. I was always afraid I was going to embarrassingly forget the pledge. <laughs> like, you know, it's something we all know, but when you're, the pressure's on you and it's your, it's something you, you do every day, but you didn't do on the microphone every day, that would terrify me that it would be so embarrassing to forget a word. <laughs> so that, I guess you would call it a, a gig, uh, led to your first real taste, as far as I understand it, of show business. Who is or was Tom Sullivan? And how did that come out of you being still in high school, I think? So I, as I was the voice of Dunwoody, I decided to take that and market it. I decided that I was going to call the local pop station and tell them that I am a listener of theirs. Tom Sullivan was the night jock, so he was on when I would do my homework. And I somehow built up the confidence to call in and try and, uh, under the guise of requesting a song, uh, tell them that I am, uh, you know, I'm a broadcaster. Every morning at Dunwoody High School, I say the pledge and give some announcements. And so somehow I got through a couple of times and requested a song for the countdown and struck up a conversation with Tom Sullivan, who was actually curious about it. You know, it was this kid and my voice was deeper than my size was at the time. So I sounded a little bit older. And he said, and I, I said to him, I established a relationship calling in over a couple of weeks. And I asked him if I could come take a tour of the studio. And he said, sure, why don't you do that? I came down and at that point, I, I just fell in love with watching a live broadcast, watching the adrenaline rush and the moments and pressing the button, starting the song and knowing when the song's going to end and what commercial comes next. And, and I was fascinated by it at 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this is all I want to do. And he snuck me in because I didn't uh, have an official internship. He snuck me in weeknights for a year, every single Monday through Friday, actually, to pull his cartridges from the wall. Wow. And your involvement with him or with that station, is it correct that that continued even after you go off to University of Georgia? Yeah, yeah that's true. I, one night I was playing a track of his voice and I screwed up the track 
and uh, I decided to sign on the air, and it was a Sunday night, and it was late. And typically, at that time, it's a low listening uh, time of the weekend. So I thought no one would really know if I'd say the call letters. Turns out I did. I said the call letters. The program director had just arrived from Miami at the Atlanta airport and was driving to his apartment and happened to hear it (laughs) and asked me to come in the next day and have a conversation. And for some reason, he was not that upset. He really he wanted to understand why I did it. And then he and he said, listen, I, I, I admired that you did do that. It was a real risk in judgment. And then he let me do a couple of overnight shifts as a teenager. And then I turned into more and more hours on the air. And continued, as, we, as we're saying, when you were at off at college. And I guess it was going well, because what was it that at 19 makes you say, I'm going to leave college? And how did your folks and whoever else feel about that? That's a big move. It's a big move. I come from a very traditional, conventional family, has no ties to entertainment or Hollywood. And I, as I said, my father is an attorney. And so he has a lot, he has a lot of questions about everything always. (laughs) And it's a lot of worst case scenario questions. Honestly, I laid in bed every single night at the university of Georgia, almost, um, with this, this feeling inside of me that I, 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 I wanted to go pursue television and radio. And there was such a ferocious impatience to it that I just couldn't see myself staying in one place in Athens, Georgia, although I loved it, waiting for waiting for this to to die down or waiting for this to build up. And after, you know, a year of of those sort of sleepless nights knowing that this is something I wanted to do and I wanted to go now, I wanted it to happen now, I presented it to my parents and I said, uh, I'm going to, I am going to I didn't, didn't really ask for permission, but I said, I am going to pack my things in the car. I'm going to go to Hollywood. And if I don't, if I can't cover my costs in a year, I'll come back and finish everything as, as you wish, which I was never going to do, (laughs) but, but I wanted them to feel that. And I knew that with them thinking that it would push me to try and and do as much as I could when I got to LA. And that was 94. And that was 94. Yeah. 94. And so when you get out there, can you set the scene? I mean, what there it wasn't like there was a welcoming committee. You had to now make something happen within a year, right? That's right. No, there wasn't a welcoming committee. There was um, the one, the, the peace of mind my mom and dad had with me moving to LA, which was so foreign to them, was my father was in the military with a guy whose son happened to be a teacher in LA. And so they said, you got to go meet him and you room with him because at least we can call his father to see how you're doing if you're not telling us. <laughs> what kind of what kind of configure? How, how much trust is in this relationship? And uh, and so I I met him. We moved in together in Burbank, Verdugo, Hollywood Way in Verdugo and Burbank under the big big power lines. We split a one bedroom apartment. It was I mean it was you know two beds pushed to the corners. It was three hundred eighty five dollars a month each. And that was the beginning. And then I started hounding the local radio station in Los Angeles. At the time, was Star 98.7. And I got in as a, as a driver and an overnight guy. Where does Merv Griffin enter the picture? Because that's, that's one of the first of many amazing situations where it seems like you found the perfect mentors that you needed for the kind of career you wanted to have. How did that even come about? Well, when I was a teenager... I discovered Merv Griffin, I think old reruns of his talk show. Um, I knew what Jeopardy and Wheel were. I was fascinated by this charismatic host was also the man behind a lot of great ideas. I didn't understand what that meant, but I thought that was interesting. I would stay home and um, watch Dick Clark on New Year's Eve. I, w- I loved American Bandstand. So those, those two um, names were part of my childhood. And I felt like, wow, if I were going to try and pursue a similar path. These are the two guys that I'd want to, you know, follow. And when I um, was in LA, I had auditioned for a show called Gladiators 2000, which was the American Gladiators for Kids, a Saturday morning SEC programming. Um, I got the job. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was all the gladiators competing and climbing the food pyramid with different kids competing against them. And from from that, Merv Griffin happened to see it. He happened to watch it, and he created a kids' game show called Click. And I got an audition to come to the Beverly Hilton 
which he owned and <laughs> auditioned to be the host of that show. And I, uh, I remember I auditioned for producers. Then I had to simulate gameplay for Merv in one of the uh, meeting rooms at the Beverly Hilton. And I got the job. And when I, I could, I mean, I couldn't believe it, but when I had the opportunity to tape a show, I had said to him that if I could audit meetings or sit in on things, it would be a privilege and I'll do whatever, you know, I can be an assistant, but I would love to hear how you operate. And that's mm -hmm. how it started with him. And, uh, I have a great quote. I want to read back to you from a past interview that you did quote, I learned a very important word just after I turned 21. I learned the word equity. Close quote. <laughs> um, <laughs> can you yes. uh, talk about what you learned from being around Murph? Well, I learned equity ownership was where you could have a little job security. Um, I think that he taught me that perf look, performing is great, but performing can come and go very fast and certainly in this business. And if you really want to do something for a long time, you can perform, enjoy that, but you really want to try and own that. And, uh, and I, I would sit at Griff's, which was the restaurant at the pool at the Beverly Hilton with him in his lunch meetings. And I would watch him charm, uh, it just <laughs> incredible charm in a meeting and then close a really tough deal all within 42 minutes. And it was one of the most incredible things I'd ever seen in my life. And so I remember thinking about that and always wanting to try and have some, some interest in the things that I perform on. So it seems like for about nine years leading up to Idol, you're hosting a bunch of different shows that, as you've described, that not a lot of people were watching. This includes... I guess ESPN's Radical Outdoor Challenge, Sci-Fi Channel's New Edge, a whole bunch of stuff. What did you learn from from those years? And if that had been sort of the trajectory for the rest of your career going forward, would you have been happy? No, I would not have been happy because mm -hmm. I really wanted bigger things, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm being totally honest with you. Yeah. I would have been you know, somewhat happy that I was doing something I love, but I think I would have always been pushing or trying to, to take the next step. At the time I was hosting a local Los Angeles radio show every night. And then in the day I would tape one of these TV shows, depending on what it was. So I remember not having time from when I was 20 years old in the day. And I became conditioned to cram and jam minute by minute, every little uh, moment of the day into doing something that was work related. So I, I started, you know, I would host wild animal games with a chimpanzee as my host, literally for the family <laughs> channel. Woody Frazier was the producer and we would do six shows in a day. And then I go to the radio station at night. So I was in that sort of that, that, that tempo as, as um, an early host. And I think that, that, drove me into wanting to do more of it. Tell me about the, what basically led up to this weekend where you talk, people talk about a fork in the road. You've got to choose a direction. I mean, you had an unbelievable situation for a guy who was wanting to get into this stuff in the big time where somehow it seems like in the same weekend, you've got to decide between offers to do, to, to host family feud and this new show well, let's just say long established family feud. Yeah. And then some new show that nobody knows anything about called American Idol. How do you end up with that decision and how did you make the decision? I screen tested for Family Feud. This was 20 years ago or 18, 19 years ago. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, Family Feud, I watched this growing up. I'm looking at the, the survey says board and I'm looking, I'm listening to the theme song and the buzzers. And it was all so tangible and real. And this was the moment I thought, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, this is going to be my big break. And I was so excited and so happy. And I did the screen test and I, I think it went well. Although, you know, you second guess everything you say. And then I remember getting a phone call on a Friday from Fremantle, um, the production company. And the conversation was, and it may have been through a representative, but the, the decision was, hey, they will, they will offer you Family Feud as the host for X dollars. But there's something they have in the pipeline they think you're better suited for, but they're not sure it's a go and they can't tell you what it is yet. And I thought, I mean, this is like career torture. This, yeah. is, what, hey, this is my big break. And yet there's this other thing dangling, but it's an uncertain project. Um, I went back and forth a lot. I, I, 
I really, really had a very, very, very difficult weekend, not really knowing what to do. And, and I didn't have any more information about it. I didn't know it was American Idol. I did. I knew it was pop idol in the UK that they were going to bring over. And I was working full time on the radio and I decided for some reason to pass on family. I might have asked to do both. I mean, I probably asked to do both and they probably said no. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and I was, my heart sank and I was, I was, I was really afraid of that decision. And then within days, maybe they, they came back and they were able to tell me that they're bringing over this show from the UK that Fox is going to put on the air. And, uh, that's, that's how that happened. Well, can I just interject one thing, which is that Nigel Lithgow, the producer says he originally met with you for a different job on American Idol than what you ended up doing. So what was that? He wanted me to be a judge. He uh, interviewed me at Star 98.7 at the time. I remember in the conference room and he said, we are, I, he, the only judge he told me about was Simon. He said, we're bringing over an A&R guy from the UK. Uh, you know, you've, you've been on the radio for a few years. You play music in Los Angeles. We think that uh, we'd like to look at you uh, for a, as a judge. And honestly, I didn't have the confidence to be a judge at that time in my life. I was 28, I think. And I, you know, remember I just passed on the family feud. So I'm torturing myself through all this. And I said to Nigel and Ken Warwick, who was there too, I said, do you have a host? And they said, yeah, we do. We have one and we're looking for another one. I said, well, could I audition to be the other guy? And that's how that happened. That's how it was originally for, for folks who need a reminder. It was you and Brian Dunkelman for that first season. And then you ever since. And I guess to, this brings in Dick Clark, who you were talking about, because if there was ever a show that Idol was sort of similar to, in a way, it would, I guess, be American Bandstand. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I know that you were familiar with that. How did you, when and how did you come to know Dick personally? Remember, like yesterday, it was after the first season of Idol, it was successful. They had brought me back to be the sole host. I, for the entire first season, wanted to call Dick Clark and set a meeting. I didn't. I waited because I want to make sure we were coming back on the air. I called his office. I got a meeting with him. I went over to the you know house and looks like a house in Burbank, their production offices, and sat in his office. And I, I just, you know, I, I kind of, I fanned out a little bit. And then I asked him simply, you know, what do you think a host can do to create longevity in this business, no matter what, what show they're hosting. And, uh, because I'd, I'd done a bunch of those little shows that no one really saw. And I knew that there might be many more to come, might not be the same one. And I remember him telling me, you want to be on the screen and have every single person watching you think it's the easiest job in the world. And that anyone can do your job, like almost insult you that it's, ridiculous that you have this as a job. (laughs) And I thought, well, that sounds bad. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, but he went on to say, if it looks like it's hard or it looks like it's work or it looks like it's effort, you're not doing it well. You're not doing it seamlessly. And I, that has stuck with me forever. You want to create, you don't have to be controversial or that clever or the smartest, most talented person. But if you can create this box of accessibility and comfort, that goes a long way. So what was the, I mean, that's that, probably is easier said than done to just get to that point where you can project that uh, sense of ease on screen, especially in a live situation. Mm -hmm. From those early days when, just to remind people, we're talking about Randy Jackson, Paul Abdul, and Simon Cowell, the judges. Simon's obviously giving you a hard time as uh, in your job there to begin with. You guys have all kinds, you know, stuff that we now take for granted about the format of the show you couldn't just fall back on reflexes about how the show itself was even going to work. So just how a two-parter, I guess, when did you first realize the show itself was really had the potential to be something special? And then how did you find that role that you've perfected on it? So I felt there was something really special about it after some of the first episodes aired because friends of mine who were already sick of me were really talking about it with their friends and you, you, you know, back then it, it was such a different time when this show started. It was, uh, you know, a show could and it eventually did generate tens and tens of millions of people each weeknight it was on, but you could sense something. And when we would be out here in Los Angeles or, you know, at, at a public place, 
people immediately knew who you were and knew what you did and knew the show and were asking you about it. And I never felt that in my life. And then in season two, it was, you know, season two, three and four, when bars were shutting down, you know, the music to play the, the, the finale, you knew you were all on a ride. And I think just simple things for me on the show to create that, that comfort that I was terrified to try and do, for example, I don't wear an IFB or an earpiece on American Idol. I, 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 I don't want to be distracted from what's happening on the stage. I want to be able to hear and see everything and make game time decisions as the show is going out live. As I did more of that, they gave me more freedom to make those calls. A simple thing, like after a couple of seasons, I stopped holding a microphone and put a lav on and put a hand in my pocket so I could walk around. I didn't want to have one mark. I want to be able to float across the stage, get close to a contestant, get close to a judge. So it was just like very simple, fundamental things that I tried to do to create a more comfortable atmosphere on a big stage. What do you remember from those early days being sort of the 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 great moments, the most where, the, you know, the really special moments? I'm thinking just as a viewer about a moment like this, just or different things like that, where, you know, you're seeing something yeah. that people are really into, but for you, from your perspective, that's what matters. Well, we would, we would, you know, during the season, you knew that the show was successful because, you know, people would really take pride in ownership and who their favorites were. And they'd tell you about it no matter where you were, <laughs> which was great. And then you get to the finales of these seasons and, you know, Kelly Clarkson, the Kodak theater at the time, we would go to hometowns and the hometowns were completely shut down for this finale broadcast. And you saw people in the streets and uh, the, the messages from big cities and small towns. And it was incredible to see the reaction across America for these races for the, who would be the, the winner. And so I remember looking at Justin Guarini and looking at Kelly Clarkson and looking down at the card and seeing Kelly's name and having that all happen in my head before anybody knew and then the fireworks and the confetti coming down when she sung a moment like this, which is this great, powerful, strong ballad. And um, so that one always stands out. But it, it's really it's really that last act in any season where we're back timing the show to get everything in. And the card is handed to me and my heart's pounding. Their hearts are pounding. We're talking during the three minutes of commercials. And here we come back live to the stage in one of these big venues and uh, you look down, you say their name, and their life changes forever. That's always the, the most emotional part for me. Well, I had the treat of being in the, in the room over at CBS, this most recent final episode of last season, when you did that. And uh, it is a, it, it's a pretty incredible vibe you guys create in the room. And, um, and I, I guess that's been the case through a lot of different judges and contestants and all of that. I want to get, though, if we can hone in on what the actual particular appeal of live TV is, because this could have been a there's no real reason why it couldn't be a pre-taped show, except that there's something for the audience. And I think something for you about the fact that it's live that makes it extra special. What is it for you that does? I, I, I think there's an excitement for the viewer. I think that there's a spontaneous component. There's there's an imperfection to the shows that is just it, it, look, they can be smooth, but not perfect. They're not edited too tight. They breathe. They have a, a human component to them. And I think as a viewer, it's exciting. It's like watching a sporting event. It's exciting to not quite know what's going to happen. And when you know that we don't have a safety net, that's fun. Uh, and when things do go wrong, that's fun too. Well, what's been the, what's been the um, most interesting thing in terms of something going wrong? I remember the I remember the David Archuleta, David Cook. Uh, oh my <laughs> God. Can you remind folks what happened from your so perspective? I'm, I'm going to give you a, the best memory I can here, but David Cook and David Archuleta, the two Davids come down to the finale and uh, uh, the show, the finale was running over. Many times they asked us to run over the top of the hour, which is for a different podcast, but <laughs> we were running over the top of the hour as, as scheduled and people set their DVRs to see the last winning moment. And somehow, the universe created a universal stop of all DVRs in America at the point where I said, and the winner is David, no last name. <laughs> I literally, I mean, I couldn't have timed it better, but it was anybody who DVR'd in the nation stopped without the last name. And people thought it was a big conspiracy. <laughs> it was crazy. There, there, were, there, were, there was a time when I had, uh, I looked down at the card and they had given me, or I picked up the wrong card. And I remember thinking, oh gosh, these are the final results. How am I going to walk off the stage and get the card? And so I remember looking at the card, seeing it was like, you know, the previous act card. And 
I see. You know, before we get to these final results, Randy Jackson, <laughs> let me ask you one more time. What wisdom do you have for these two finalists? And as the, I always always have a monitor. As the camera yeah. cut to Randy full screen, I sprinted off stage, grabbed the card, sprinted back, stood there by the time they cut back and everything looked fine. So you did what Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway should have done. <laughs> well, yes, but it's hard. Um, it's hard to know what to do. I, it's, I lucked right. out in my case. But I think, you know, for, for, and, and just to answer your question, for me, yeah. there is a rush and a pace to live broadcasting that is just not on tape. And I, I'm actually not that good on tape. I'm, I, I think I'm a little bit better live than on tape. I find my myself i don't know maybe i just relax too much when and where did uh seacrest out come from seacrest out was a was a way i would sign off on several seasons of the show and you know the i think the reason i did it for the first time was because it was quick and easy to say if the clock was about to run out so it would be like uh, you know next week we'll be back with your top eight seacrest out you know it's an easy <laughs> way to say good night without getting caught by the clock and for some I don't have, I have no idea why that stuck. Well, now you got, you know, Obama out and all these people that it's gone by. <laughs> uh, so I guess before we go any further with just the, you know, the professional side of things, your life had to have, you know, you mentioned people were starting to recognize you, but I know it was a lot more than that because I know even, and I've got to thank you, I guess about 17 years late, I was one of the people who probably nagged you when you were j when this was just blowing up. I, I lived in Connecticut. I came out to LA for the first time. I think it was 2003. My dad took me to the Palm and we see you and whoever else over on one side and, oh, yeah. and like a million other people who probably didn't let you get through a, a meal. I was an obnoxious high school kid who came over and you couldn't have been nicer. I still have the receipt that you signed and whatever, but oh, that's I'm, funny. <laughs> well, I'm, glad but, I, I, I'm glad to hear I was nice. I tried yes. to be. <laughs> no, you were, but I mean, I, I have to think though, seriously, that's a huge adjustment for you. Like you said, you were 28, 29 when this was all blowing up for the first time. How did you, I mean, on the one hand, it's clearly what you had been what hoping you, for, wanted, right? but you can't know what you're going to get until you've got it. No. And it's everything I wanted. So I had to tell myself that. And then what I, I have a very simple way of looking at it. And certainly in, in the height of all of it, it was when I leave my house, I'm a public person. I'm a, I'm public property essentially. And when I leave my house, I'm never going to say no, not to a picture, not to an autograph, not to a conversation. And I just started that from the beginning and I, it makes me happy. Like I, it doesn't bother me. I, friends of mine will tell people to leave us alone. I say, no, come on. It's, it's just the way I, the lens I looked through because I knew it's what I wanted and never had it. And that makes it easy. If you, mm -hmm. if you go out like that thing and like that, nothing's a problem. So meanwhile, during the run of Idol, which is now what, like 18 years, 18. Yeah. There's a reason that you've kind of come to have this reputation as the hardest working man in show business. Let's talk about the things unrelated to Idol that you've been doing during Idol's run, if we can just touch on a few quickly. January 2004, you become the host of the syndicated weekly American Top 40. That was previously Casey Kasem's thing every weekend. Just a thought or two on why you got involved with that and the main value of that, and then we'll go on to the next. Sure, quickly. I, this was the show I listened to mowing lawns in uh, the neighborhood I lived in in Atlanta when I would work on the weekends to make cash to buy stuff to create a radio show in my bedroom. It was Casey's Countdown that was the most, it was the biggest thing on the planet to me. And you got to hear the biggest songs in the country, and his voice was so signature. And so I'm at 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, he was a superstar to me. And I can tell you how that job happened with the morning radio show, which was on Kiss FM. So yes. Rick D, Rick, I don't know if that's on that list there. But. That's number two. It's, it sounds like in February of that same year, a month later is when you became the host of the morning show there. Yeah, it, it was um, It was a time when both opportunities presented themselves to me through the same company, which operated the American Top 40 and Kiss FM. And it was presented to me that I could step into both roles. And I, these are the two legends, Rick Dees and Casey Kasem, the two legends in broadcast radio, in music broadcast radio. Uh, so I, I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, I was so excited to do it. Both of those roles started simultaneously, uh, however many years ago. Then in January 2006 is when your time with E began. This was E News originally on red carpets. Then in 09, December 09, Comcast acquires... NBC Universal, mm -hmm. E's parent company, 
which was eventually completed in 2011. And it was then that you guys were, I think you were beginning to figure out how to, you know, kind of parlay what you do into the various branches of this new conglomerate. That was a, a maybe that was the moment that Merv Griffin, those lessons had been preparing you for in terms yeah, of equity. I, I was excited about that merger and uh, because it just meant, you know, more broadcast platforms. And when I went over to E, I was I was signed to Hosty News, host the red carpets, which I was terrified to host actually, because I, at the time, I wasn't quite sure I would know who anyone was. I was very worried that I would be on the red carpet in this live format that's broadcast around the world on E, and unsure. Sometimes I'm very unsure of which celebrities which. At least I was at the beginning. <laughs> And and I was so terrified that I had a conversation with Ted Harvard, who ran E at the time. And for the first E red carpet I ever hosted was the Golden Globes. And if you go back and look, I hosted it from the roof of the Beverly Hilton because I was terrified to be on the carpet. And I would just <laughs> toss back and forth to the reporters on the carpet. And after the show, Ted said, this is not, you cannot, no, we're not doing this. So did, did you ever have a major kind of red carpet identity screw up? I'm sure I have. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think there are times where you're caught off guard and you're, I know you're talking to someone and I'm asking generic questions to try and under <laughs> uncover the project that they're here celebrating. Right. You know, there's, there's certain ways to phrase things that you can uncover some detail and then without acting like you've discovered the Eureka moment, you just sort of segue <laughs> into that Eureka moment. Now I, I skipped over chronologically one big thing cause I want to give it a little bit maybe more time than these others and that it let's just roll out the new year's rock and eve mm. situation here because dick clark has a stroke in december 2004 regis fills in that year going into 2005 how in 2005 do you enter the picture and what was it like working alongside dick another one like we said you know one of your heroes until his death in 2012 mm -hmm. uh, because by 2008 to going into 2009 it's already now Dick Clark's New Year's Rock and Eve with Ryan Seacrest. Mm -hmm. This was uh, in another uh, just incredibly significant moment in my life. I had been hosting the Fox New Year's Eve show for two years, one out of Vegas. And then the when, Re when Regis stepped in to help Dick, I was across the street on the rooftop of the Hard Rock Cafe doing the Fox New Year's Eve show. And so I was in Times Square. I was doing a New Year's Eve show, but it was not the behemoth that the ABC show was. After Regis filled in, later that next year, I got a call from Dick Clark Productions, and they had asked if I would uh, come over, come across the street, and be a part of what Dick was doing. And obviously, you know, Dick was had his condition, and so there was a lot of uncertainty with each broadcast that we would do together. But my only goal every time I stepped into Times Square on New Year's Eve while he was a part of the show on the air was to give him the opportunity to shine for 20 seconds, one minute, whatever it was that he wanted. And I, I, that was... That was another time where every after every ball drop, I'd come inside and just say, oh, is everything okay? Are you happy? Did we do okay? And seek his seal of approval. Well, as you look back at the many New Year's Eves now, both before and since Dick, any particular moments stand out, good or bad? I mean, we, I, the ones that get coverage in the media, you know, are the things that are obvious, like Mariah's blooper or yeah. whatever. But from your point of view, what stands out the most? That show is it is the is the biggest show that I do in terms of its scale and its unknowns because you're dealing not with your own environment you're dealing with the Times Square environment and you don't control any of that and so and we're running back and forth across city blocks from stage to stage uh, so there are there's so many moments that stand out you know seeing the ball come down and just feeling the energy in there but I do remember. It ended up being, I think, Dick's last broadcast. I, I went in, as I had always done, and just to say thank you and how do we do. And, you know, he, he didn't really say anything. He just hugged me and he cried. Wow. And so I almost get teary thinking about it. But he was really emotional. I don't know if, if he knew, but it, he, he didn't say anything. He just, he, we embraced and he actually, he shed tears. And, you know, I don't think I'll ever forget that. And that, I think that might have been his last one. Yeah. I guess all of this begs the question, because, I mean, again, we, we shouldn't it's not like you took a break to do these other things. Idol was going on during all of these other 
things that we've talked about, and there are more that we'll come to. I guess the question then is, why take on so much? I know you've said that, and and I I don't believe I'm speaking out of turn because I think you've talked about this in other interviews, but I think you've said you have ADD. Uh, Maybe you need a lot going on. Maybe you want a lot going on. But if you actually, I don't know if you've ever been in therapy like some of us or anything. Have, if you ever, have you ever figured out why you push yourself so hard? Professionally, no. And I should seek that help. <laughs> um, I, I do believe that I go back to laying there in bed in my dorm in college, feeling the anxiety and the intensity of that anxiety, wanting to do what it is that I get to do. And I think that because you know, I had a foot in the door and then looking at those models of Dick and Merv, it was this mentality of you never had this. You always wanted this. You, you better do it. Keep doing it. Take on more of it. And by doing that, maybe you'll follow these two guys in some way that were able to create something pretty remarkable. Um, I also just become, became so conditioned to strategically scheduling, uh, fitting, I mean, the puzzle that we create in, in this COVID moment is, is, is it's, it's a true puzzle, but I, I do believe it's because I, I always wanted it. I never had it and I couldn't believe I got it. Now I'm not, uh, I'm the last person that's ever going to ask anybody on this podcast about their, about how they fill their personal life, but how do you balance this much stuff with a personal life? Has that been a challenge to, to figure out the, the balance? It has. I think it's, you know, you go through phases where you, you strike a balance. Then you go through phases where you, you have the imbalance, you know, when over the years, when it was red carpet season, it was idle. It was the morning radio show. It was American top 40. It was e-news. I mean, there were five daily responsibilities. You lose the balance. I mean, and you are, you are drained by the end of every day and you got to go do it again the next day. So, I mean, that's, that's always been a, a tough struggle. I mean, maybe it's, perhaps why I'm not married right now. But, uh, so thank you for this therapy. But, <laughs> but I think that's, that's part of it. You know, there, I do have to grow up a little bit and realize that there needs to be a work-life balance. Did you, I don't know if you have people who, you know, since Dick and Merv and people like that are no longer around, are there people today who, or in the years since then, who, whose counsel means similar stuff to you who, you know, I, I would just think, you've managed to go to do as much as anyone without having what some people have where they're considered overexposed and people turn on them and all of that. Was that ever a concern? How do you manage overexposure? I, 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 I think some people might argue I am overexposed <laughs> right now. Uh, yes, I think that was a concern. Matter of fact, I have been told before over the years, uh, you know, we're not going to do this with you because you are overexposed. I told myself early on and, and you know, this is, one of the reasons overexposure manifests itself. But when I was starting on Idol and I was starting on E and I was starting to produce the Kardashians, I wanted to have a a touch point to an audience at every day part. So that would be wake up and drive in. That would be uh, you know primetime TV show. That would be a cable TV show. That would be an award show. So my model was to always have a connection with the audience no matter what time of day or day of the week. And I, I just, I, it's one of the reasons I said yes to a lot of things. It's one of the reasons I kept doing a lot of things, but that was what I believed I needed to be successful. Well, you've brought up the, where I wanted to go next, which is that, you know, there, there's all this stuff that's gone on in front of cameras, but there's a lot of stuff that's gone on behind cameras and as successfully as anyone in, in the reality TV realm, where did Ryan Seacrest Productions, the idea for it come from? This started in 06 and uh, and what, so I guess the company itself and then why the focus on reality leading to all kinds of things. People are, you know, most closely associate you with Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which has been since 2007. But I think you won an Emmy in 2010 for Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution. There's a whole bunch mm-hmm. of stuff out there. So I guess just why the company initially and why reality TV specifically? Uh, the company initially, because that's what my role models did. Merv Griffin had a production company. Dick Clark had a production company. Dick Clark called it Dick Clark Productions. I called mine Ryan Seacrest Productions. It was that yeah. that simple. Uh, why the reality pursuit was the, uh, the production company partner at the time was E Comcast. And they were in the market for a reality show that could be a flagship show for E. And at the time, I was watching the Osbournes, and I was obsessed with the Osbournes on MTV. 
And I made it known that I was looking for a family to produce and put on the E-Network. And Chris Jenner was looking for a place to do a show with the family. The two of us brokered a meeting. We, we formed a partnership together and we pitched the show to E. And as I remember it, E, I know, E passed on doing the show. And uh, we were about to take it over to Bravo. And uh, we called Ted Harvard once again. I don't think he knew that he had passed. We said, really think you should look at this tape. And then the rest ended up on E all the time. That show has, you know, there were precedents, whether it's, you know, whatever, Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie and yeah. different things. But why is that show as big as it is and as divisive? I mean, there are people that will not miss it for anything. And then there are also people who would argue that, it's bad for America and, you know, very against it. Break down that show for for me from your perspective. If you Simply will. before it went on the air, it was about the relationship that sisters have with each other and the relationship that those sisters have with their family. And at the, it was a very simple formula. At the end of every episode, no matter what craziness we saw with those sisters, they would sit with the family in the living room and everyone would have a hug. It would just everything would be okay. And you would see that the family was, was still strong. I mean, since then, the things that have happened with the family, obviously we'd have no idea that would happen, but you know, they, they've, they've covered a lot of cultural, uh, storylines, things that, that blended families that, that separated families go through. And so there are some significantly relatable things to the show. At the same time, there are a lot of aspirational things to the show as well. And I think people have, you know, they have formed opinions about the show, but I will say that it is impressive to see that that family sticks together through a public narrative and a private narrative. And they are very, very hard workers. They, they show up to shoot that show all the time. And, to, you know, obviously you were instrumental at the beginning. Do you remain very involved with what they do? I don't have to do a thing. No? No, no this is a machine. Uh, they are they are so, um, they're, they're so engaged and so involved. And, you know, many of them are executive producers now. So, yeah, I, it was, at the, the beginning I would watch these tapes and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But now, no, it just runs. <laughs> Coming back to Idol for, for a moment here, obviously a lot of your contestants who have, past before you have uh, gone on to some very big things. Let's just mention a few quickly. Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood, Jer uh, Jennifer Hudson, Adam Lambert, Chris Daltrey, many others. What do you make of the fact that you guys became such a launching pad and, and continue to be? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the show is a big engine for publicity and for marketing, and it does come down to having good songs after you're on the show. A lot of those artists... Um, were able to create good songs or or attach themselves to good songs, and that becomes the next chapter and the next step. But it's hard. I mean, you see how we do the show every year, and we haven't had we, we haven't had someone stick every time, but we've had them stick a lot. And to get a few that stick in in terms of like your Carrie Underwood career, your Kelly Clarkson, or uh, you look at Jennifer Hudson and Adam Lambert. I mean, those those are real real stars that you even forget were on American Idol. Was there a, I know that probably you had, would have had to keep this close to the vest, but you have to have your own opinions during these seasons. Was there somebody that you were most rooting for or against? I, I mean, I, I'm not against, I don't, there was no one that annoyed me so much that I wanted to root against them. <laughs> um, I think that for all of them, there's, it's such a new experience. It's pretty cool to watch them take it on. I remember being pretty surprised that Chris Daughtry got, voted off as early as he got voted off. And that was a pretty shocking moment, I think, for Chris, too. And we both were surprised on stage when that happened. And he was totally shocked. But, you know, you go on to look at what, what Adam has been able to accomplish and uh, what, what they're able to do. It just goes to show you what, what true artists and real artists are able to do with an opportunity. For a number of those early years with Idol, you guys were up against another reality show over on NBC called The Apprentice. Uh, and I know that that host, Donald Trump, was somebody who, you know, you, you cross paths with over the years on your radio show or whatever. Could you ever have imagined that we would be sitting here where he's president and just everything that's transpired with regard to that? I don't think I would have ever thought about it like that. I remember the times that he was a guest. It was mostly in the radio studio where he was a guest a couple of times. 
just marketing. I mean, he was yeah. just, he was selling, he was selling the apprentice. He was marketing the apprentice. He was, it was just dri driving the conversation, but was marketing everything that he appeared with. And he's, he's, you know, certainly, uh, I guess an effective marketer when it comes to his showbiz stuff over the years. It's not, I mean, doesn't mean I'm the, we don't have to go beyond that, but he is, there was something that made him click with people. Huh? There, 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 there is an energy to that marketing drive that he yeah. brings with everything. So Idol ended, or so it appeared, on April 7th, 2016. You very emotionally signed off in a way that suggested that although it was finished at Fox, you didn't think it, it seemed like you didn't think it was finished overall. I will quote back to you, quote, one more time, we say to you from Hollywood, good night, America, for now. Close quote. Why did Fox decide the party was over after 15 seasons? How do you think they handled that? And and did you did you really believe all along that it was going to come back in some form? I don't know why they didn't pick it up, to be honest with you. I mean, that's, that's a question whoever was there at the time can answer. I do know that we were, we felt we were generating strong numbers in audience for the time uh, in television history that it was. And so, you know, because of some closed door conversations and just some fun in saying it, I felt like somewhere, somehow with all the different platforms that are available now or coming soon, this show and this format, I just felt like it was going to come back. And those of us who had worked on it for a long time, were going to try and, and bring it back somewhere. And fortunately, ABC is the, it's a perfect spot. When it did end, at least temporarily there, um, did you keep any mementos from the... Yeah, the desk I'm using right now for the uh, for Idol from Home. There's a judge's desk that was sent to me as a gift and, and a big, bright American Idol sign. And it's what I've had set up in my uh, living room to host the show for the last couple of weeks. I never thought I'd have to use it again <laughs> like that, but it's coming very handy. That's awesome. And when the show ended and there was that, I guess, 13-month period when it was just it was for all intents and purposes dead. What were you imagining your future was going to look like? I know that other things entered the picture pretty quickly. You know, I didn't know what was going. I, I, I wasn't sure it was going to come back. I didn't know what was next for me. And that's when the live with Kelly and Ryan opportunity came about. And that was, I guess, Regis in a way was maybe, it seems like he's in the vein of a Merv Griffin, a Dick Clark. Like that, was that a job that you'd always sort of, looked at with interest. Yeah. And I had talked to Regis over the years. Uh, I called him for advice on one of the shows I was going to do. And he, to me was one of the most, uh, amazing hosts that could make something look so seamless and comfortable and casual at the same time presenting something. And so, and, and, you know, what struck me about live live, was that it's live. And, you know, a lot of the daily strips are not live. They're taped and they're, they're delayed by a day or more. And I really liked the notion that live with Kelly was live and she and I had known each other for over 15 years. It was very complicated to figure out how to get to New York, but we worked it out. And I think, did you, ha you had a call with Regis right after you signed up to do it. What did, what was his words of wisdom or whatever at that moment? I, I had a call with Regis. I think it was before we worked that out. I, it was, I was hosting a show for NBC called Million Second Quiz, and I asked him some questions about when he hosted Millionaire, and he gave me some good advice. And then I told him that it was a quiz show and we were going to do it live. And then he said, oh, that's, that's going to be tough. A quiz show with standards and practices live on a rooftop in Manhattan. Um, but then I saw him. He came into the studio and he came into the radio studio and uh, just, you know, very, very kind and uh, congenial like he always is. The beginning of that show, format-wise, you know, you're off the cuff. There's then there's interviews, then there's all, all kinds of stuff. But what's your approach? You know, some people say they're hungry to know what you think about world issues or current events or things. And I understand that as somebody, you know, there's no point in turning off a portion of the audience if you espouse an opinion that's not going to go over with half the people. But how do you navigate that? Is there do you feel a responsibility to to weigh in on? Some of the we're we're living in very divided times. How do you how do you deal with that? Well, I think the show in general before this moment, let's put the pin in this moment for a second. The show before that is a place that's opposite program. It's counter programming to all of that, right? It's not right. news. It's it's not hard news. 
It's not hard politics. It is uh, the counter program, the more lifestyle program, the more off-the-cuff fun program. I mean, that first 22 minutes of that television show is completely autonomous. It is crazy to see. Now I know, but it was crazy to see it at the beginning. It's really driven by the, the two hosts. I think, you know, in this moment now, we're doing the show from our homes, and we've pivoted, for example, uh, you know, the segments are less celebrity driven and they're they're more human interest driven. Uh, we're talking to um, we're doing good news stories about covid survivors. We're talking about helping heroes who are doing things in their community. So we have made a pivot, not into hard news, but certainly to reflect the time that we're all living through. So in the home stretch here, obviously, Idol came back on March 11th of 2018 now on ABC, this was after 13 months away. Was that just sort of like stepping back into an old shoe or was there a, an adjustment? No, I actually, I call it season 18. They call it season three or four, I think. So to me, it's, you know, it's the same, the same logo, the same music. The judges uh, are, I think, fantastic with their chemistry and the judge panel had changed over the years. So that was comfortable for me as well. But no, I look at it as the, it still is the same show. And have contestants changed over the years? Are they more savvy or whatever than they were in season yeah. one in terms of play, you know, trying to play you guys a little bit? A hundred percent. I think that the contestants have evolved just in their caliber of skill set before they get to us initially. At the beginning, they were truly auditioning and didn't have all kinds of places where they could post their performances. Now they they're used to performing in front of a camera, in front of a microphone, posting it and getting feedback. So they're already at a different uh, place in their in their nature by the time they get to us. And how about you? If you if you were to look back at season one or two or whatever, how have you changed as a personality on camera and on Idol? Well, I think on Idol, I, I was I was really nervous the first couple of seasons. Uh, I think you know, and I was I was I would go I would do the show and I go back and watch the show and critique every single moment of the show um, and beat myself up over things that I would do on the show or not do on the show. So I think I've gotten past that, but I I feel more comfortable doing it. I feel like I I really look forward to it. I like doing it. I think it's been. It's been a real interesting thing to see that we could actually pull off this last season considering no one can be in the same place, and that's been fun too. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, all right, so with the last minute, if we can just do what uh, what we call a little rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your mind, what sort of TV do you consume? Um, I like cooking shows. I like food shows. Um, I also uh, binge watch Dead to Me when I just watched and uh, Ozark. I like Ozark. Yes. When you're looking into the camera on, let's say, Idol or talking to somebody or, or just talking extemporaneously on the radio, do you imagine that you're talking to a massive number of people, a house of people or an individual? Is there somebody in your mind who you're talking to? I always imagine one person. I look into the lens and see two eyes and I try and think about one person when I'm on the radio as well. I never think about a, a big group. And is that a specific person or just a generic person? No, it's a generic person. I think it, it just allows you to have a cadence about your delivery that's conversational as opposed to a big crowd like that, you know? Right. <laughs> Live TV is the last form of TV content that still gets big ratings. Does it worry you that increasing numbers of young people are just cutting the cord altogether, no longer even owning TVs? If there are fewer widely shared TV experiences, where does that leave us? Where does that leave you? Yes, I'm worried. Yes, I think about it. And I don't know where that leaves me. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sort of hanging on to the fact that it's the last thing that's rating on, on traditional television right now. But I do think about that. You know, And I've asked smarter people in our business, you know, where does live television live in the future? And I'm not so sure where. I don't, I don't quite know yet. Yeah. All right. Last one. A lot of the mentors who we've talked about, Merv Griffin, Dick Clark, Casey Kasem, people like that have have passed away and you see, you have the ability to look at the totality of their career, their legacy, their impact. Many, many years from now, when you join them in that great studio in the sky, how do you hope people will remember your contributions to the public sphere? You know, I think there are, there are two things I hope for. One is that I was a companion to them at some stage in their life. And I think, too, we have been through a foundation of mine putting media centers in children's hospitals and trying to give them a place to escape. And I think that if, if 
if those legacies live on, then I'll feel pretty good laying in that studio or stand or hosting in that studio <laughs> next to those guys. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this and I uh, really appreciate it. Great to see you. I cannot believe that Palm story. That's awesome. I'm so yeah. psyched to know that. <laughs> it meant a lot. So I know that those, those annoying people uh, must, you know, Not never know where you'll see them again. So Not at all. <laughs> well, thanks for your thoughtfulness and uh, take care. I'll see you somewhere soon, hopefully. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.